I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. Some years ago, a book was published entitled, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. I didn't read the book, but my first impression is that's basing a rather broad generalization on a rather minor issue. There was a follow-up book published entitled, Real Women Don't Pump Gas. I'm surprised they haven't come out with one for pastors. Real pastors don't drive pickup trucks. Real pastors don't wear plaid shorts at the church picnic. Real pastors don't say, dearly beloved. Real pastors don't heat their baptistries. Real pastors don't wear hard rock cafe t-shirts under their clerical gowns. Or maybe real pastors don't wear clerical gowns. Let me ask you this this morning. Have you got one of those books for Christians? See, depending on your background and depending on your scruples, the titles may vary. Let me suggest a few. Real Christians don't play cards. Real Christians don't go to dances. Real Christians don't go to movies. Real Christians don't work on Sunday. Real Christian women don't wear makeup. Real Christian women don't wear slacks. Real Christians don't have a glass of wine. Real Christians don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Real Christians don't listen to rock music. Well, you see, that's basing a rather broad generalization on a very minor issue. On those extra-biblical rules that often develop in Christian circles relative to fashion, styles of music, forms of recreation, And see, if I'm not careful, I can find myself making value judgments not on whether a person's life lines up with this book, the Bible, but on whether their life lines up with my book of my unwritten rules based on my background or my fellowship or my conscience. Now, in reference to these unwritten rules, Paul says there are two kinds of people. The first he mentions in chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak. And then he mentions a second category in chapter 15 and verse 1. He says, Now we who are strong. So there's two categories. There's the weak and the strong, and Paul tips his hand because he lets us know which group he's in. He's in the strong group. Now, what does it mean to be weak and strong? Well, he's not talking here about moral weakness. He's not talking about human weakness because 
Paul put himself squarely in that camp. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. So he readily admitted that he was human and morally weak in himself. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, he tells us what he's talking about here in chapter 14 and verse 1. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. See, he's talking about faith here. So who is the weak person? Well, J. Vernon McGee says it's always the other guy. You see, I consider the weak person to be everybody who's weaker than I am. Because I tend to think that God has made me the measuring stick for everybody else. But I want us to drop that perspective for a moment and just try to figure out here what Paul means by these two terms. Who is weak in faith? Well, this is the guy who is not necessarily weak in faith referen rev in reference to his salvation, and he's not simply weak in faith relative to the major doctrines. He is weak in faith in regards to his liberty in Christ. And Paul calls him weak in faith because Christianity for him has more to do with rules and regulations than it does with relationship. You see, the person who is weak in faith doesn't have a clear understanding of grace, and so he's become legalistic. He doesn't understand what Paul taught us back in chapter 7 and verse 6 when he said, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we no longer serve, or I'm sorry, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, the person who's weak in faith has fallen back under the law principle. The weak is extremely sensitive. He has a sensitive conscience. In fact, his conscience is too sensitive because he tends to feel guilty over things the Bible doesn't prohibit, things that are just cultural or things that are just traditional. And so he makes rules where there are no rules. He likes to set standards of maturity that are really artificial and then not only apply them to himself, but also measure everyone else by those standards as well. His motto is, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess, feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look only as I look, do always as I do, for then and only then I'll have fellowship with you. That's the weak. What about the strong? Well, the strong has solid faith. He understands and accepts his freedom and liberty in Christ. He understands grace. He understands what Paul's going to tell us down in verse 17 of this chapter when he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now you say, well, what, what kind of issues do these two groups differ over? Well, Paul mentions three areas of distinction in this passage. And those three areas are diet, days, and drink. First of all is diet. 
Verse 2. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The strong eats everything put in front of him. We got some strong people here. The weak is a theological vegetarian. You say, now why is this an issue? Well, you know, prior to the flood, man was a vegetarian. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed and every tree which has fruit. It shall be food for you. Man started out as a vegetarian. After the flood, man became carnivorous. God said to Noah in Genesis 9.3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And then when we come to the law, God established some dietary laws for Israel in places like Leviticus chapter 11. And he declared certain animals unclean. Any animal that didn't have a split hoof and chew the cud. That ruled out pork, camels, rock badgers, and rabbits. You couldn't th eat anything out of the water unless it had fins and scales which eliminates my favorite, seafood. Certain birds were out. Eagles, buzzards, ravens, storks, ostriches, owls, pelicans, bats. Also taboo were moles, mice, lizards, crocodiles. And even among the clean animals, you were prohibited to eat one that died naturally. You say, well, why was God putting all these dietary restrictions in there. Well, there were really two reasons. Some of it had to do with health reasons, but the second and primary reason was that God wanted Israel to be separate from the other nations, and so he gave them a separate diet that would set them apart from those around them. But when we come to the New Testament, what does it say? Remember in Mark chapter 7, when, when the, the leaders of Israel came up and complained that Jesus' disciples were eating without washing their hands. Now, I wasn't talking about the fact that their hands were dirty. They were not going through ceremonial washings. And Jesus went on to talk there about the fact that what goes into a man does not defile a man. But what comes out of a man defiles a man because it comes out of his heart. Jesus was saying what matters to God is not the externals. What matters to God is what's internal. And there's a great commentary there because in, in, in verse 19 of Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, what goes into a man cannot defile a man. And the writer Mark gives us a commentary. It's in parenthesis in my Bible. It says, thus he declared all foods clean. He overruled the dietary laws of the Old Testament and he declared all food to be clean. Peter realized the same thing in Acts chapter 10 when he had his vision and a sheet came out of heaven and all these animals were on the sheet and he was told to kill and eat. And Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unclean. Let me show you a verse. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
Paul is warning here about false teachers. And I'll just pick up in verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, They are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. One of the signs of a false teacher is that he will tell you you're not supposed to eat certain foods for religious reasons. And Paul warns about that. And then he goes on and builds on that. And he says, Foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Everything's clean. And then back here in Romans chapter 14, I want you to notice what Paul says down in verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. There's nothing unclean, but there were certain Christians who hadn't grasped that truth. They were weak in faith. And so they were refusing to eat certain things because of their conscience sake. Now this was a big issue in the early church because they had a lot of potluck meals. They ate from house to house. It's like going to Denny's after church and one guy eats a salad bar and you're having a steak and you get in a disagreement about what's right. Now they had these, these convictions for two reasons. One was relative to their tradition. Some of them had grown up as Jewish people and they'd grown up with all these dietary laws in the Old Testament and it was hard for them to really put those things behind them. Others were Gentiles, and for them it was a matter of association because we read in other places in the New Testament that they didn't want to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now what they did at the pagan temple was they took animals and they sacrificed them to the idols, and then they were entrepreneurs. They took them out the back door, put them in a truck, took them over to Schnucks, and sold them in the meat market. And so when they bought the meat... That meat had actually started out being offered to idols and some people had a conscience that wouldn't allow them to eat that meat because of what had happened to it prior to that. Those were the weak. And so the first area is diet. The second area is days. Look at verse 5. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. The strong in faith regards every day alike. The weak regards one day above another. Now, why is that an issue? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that it's marked with festivals and feast days and jubilee years and the Sabbath day. But when you come to the New Testament, you find none of this stuff. In fact, the early church didn't observe Christian days. They met on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, which for them was a work day. That's why they met in the evening for a meal and had their meeting on Sunday. They had worked all day on Sunday. It took three centuries for finally Constantine, the Roman emperor, to declare Sunday a holy day. In fact, the early church didn't celebrate Jesus' birthday. That's why we're not sure if December 25th is the actual day, because they didn't observe days in the early church. They didn't even observe the day Jesus died and the day Jesus rose. They didn't celebrate Easter in the early church until much later in the history of the church. And so days were not significant in the New Testament. In fact, let me show, show you a verse. Look over at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, 
Notice verse 9. Paul is speaking to the church at Galatia and he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You've been delivered, he says, now you're going back into slavery. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. See, Paul says that observing days is something that Christians ought to be growing out of. But the Galatians were growing into it, and so he says, I fear for you. That's a bad sign. Turn over a few more books to Colossians chapter 2. I want to show you another verse. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Paul says, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Don't let anybody tell you that you've got to observe a certain day. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, these are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of these things were just shadows picturing the coming of Christ. Christ has now come and you don't need the shadow anymore. You'll hear Christians today refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. I want to tell you this morning, it's nothing of the kind. Sunday is no more holy than Monday because every day is the Lord's day. And yet the weak Christian doesn't have the faith to believe that all days are alike. Some Christians will not mow the yard on Sunday. Some Christians will not go to famous bar on Sunday. I was at a pastor's conference recently and a guy found out we had Awana and he said, well, when, do you, when does your Awana meet? And I said, it meets on Sunday night. And he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, you mean nobody objects to having kids running around in your building on Sunday? You see, he had a sensitivity to that day. And so the second area is days. Third area is drink. Notice verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, Paul just alludes to this one in this passage because what's kind of interesting is this is a much bigger issue today than it was in the early church. Do you remember what Jesus' first miracle was? His first miracle was turning water into wine. And Jesus drank wine. I've never seen a picture of Jesus with a wine glass in his hand because sometimes we don't like to think about that. He drank wine. John the Baptist came and he did not eat or drink and they said he had a demon. Jesus came eating and drinking and what did they say? He's a drunkard. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now some Bible teachers lose credibility with me because at this point they kind of say, well, the wine in the first century was not the same kind of wine we have today. It was more like grape juice. And I say to that, 
That's impossible. That's absurd. Remember when the, the Holy Spirit came on the church in Acts chapter 2, and they were speaking with other languages, and the people said, they are full of new wine. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church at Corinth was accused of getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, you don't get drunk on grape juice. See, the wine he's talking about is the kind of wine we have today. And so he mentions three areas. Diet, days, and drink. And you could add a whole multitude of other things to this list as well today. The weak believer doesn't have enough faith to accept his freedom and liberty in Christ. And so he becomes legalistic. He's got all kinds of scruples about what he eats and what he drinks and what day it is. And he tends to make those things the standard of his acceptance or rejection of people. In contrast to that, the strong believer realizes that those doubtful things are areas of liberty and he is free to enjoy that liberty in Christ. So, having identified the two types of people, weak and strong, and having identified the areas in question, diet, days, and drink, you might expect that Paul in this passage is going to say, okay, you weak Christians, shape up. Drop your hang-ups. I'm tired of this. Get rid of those scruples. But you know what? That's not what he does. Because Paul realizes that a person has to grow out of these things. And it takes time. And so instead he tells the two groups, strong and weak, how to live together in harmony. And in order to experience that, he gives us four exhortations. Two are to the strong, one to the weak, and one is to both groups. The first is to the strong, and that is, accept the one who is weak, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. That word accept means exactly what it sounds like. It means welcome him, receive him, embrace him. But then he adds a condition. But not in order to pass judgment on his opinions. You see, if you're strong in faith and you've worked through these issues and you understand your liberty in Christ and along comes a brother who's weak in faith, he's got all kinds of hang-ups, he's got a huge list of legalistic scruples, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to welcome him, but not so you can correct him. Not so you can have an argument with him. He just says, welcome him. You see, Paul understood that you can't argue someone out of their weak convictions. You have to love them out of those things. And so he says the first thing you do is you welcome them, embrace them, encourage them in Christian love. And then the second exhortation is also to the strong. He says, don't despise the one who is weak. Verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Don't regard him with contempt. Don't speak against him. Don't look down on him. Don't say to him, these things are so clear to me, why can't you see it? Why are you so stupid? Thank God I'm not like you. No. He says, don't laugh, don't snicker, don't scoff, don't ridicule, 
don't put them down. And then there's a third exhortation, and that's to the weak. Don't judge the strong. The end of verse 3 says, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats. Don't judge him. Now, the weak has the same problem. You see, if he sees you washing your car on Sunday or going to a movie or he sees a deck of cards on your coffee table or he hears you listening to rock music, he says, what a hypocrite. What an awful person. Stand back, the lightning's going to hit this guy. Paul says, don't judge. You know, one of the ways we like to judge is by labeling people that we disagree with. We like to say, he's worldly, he's, he's carnal, he's liberal, he's a communist, she's a prude. In fact, for some of us, our definition of worldliness is whatever you do that I don't do. And one of our favorite indoor sports is trying to change other people. And Paul is saying, that's not your job. And so Paul tells the strong to accept and not look down on the weak. And he tells the weak not to judge the strong. Now what's interesting to me is by those exhortations, I think you can pick out the two by their expressions. You see, the strong has a tendency to sneer. The strong has a tendency to say, na-na-na-na-boo-boo. So he says, don't look down with contempt on the weak. The weak has a tendency to frown. Something happens, he sees something, he frowns about it. In fact, some of you, as you're sitting here this morning, you can feel the muscles in your face. Just kind of pulling. As, as I'm talking, you're, you're kind of feeling that, uh, that frown kind of coming on and saying, because, see, you would probably be happy if Paul would come to this passage and say, thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not work on Sunday. You see, for you, you prefer black and white. And gray areas make you uncomfortable. Well, that's the indication that you're weak in faith. And so Paul's exhortation to you is, do not judge. Now, others of you are smiling at this passage. You're saying, yes. This is freeing. This is refreshing. This is liberating. But you may also be thinking, I can't wait to show these verses to so-and-so and straighten them out. And so Paul says, your exhortation is, be careful to love and accept and not look down on your weaker brother. And then he follows that with an exhortation for both groups. He says, verse 5 at the end, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. You see, whether you eat or don't eat is not the bottom line. Whether you observe days or don't is not the bottom line. Whether you drink wine or not is not the bottom line. The bottom line is whether you are convinced in your own mind. 
See, don't say, I don't do that because that's the way I was raised. Or don't say, I do do that because Dan Green says it's okay. Paul says, you come to your own convictions about it. In fact, later here in this chapter, verse 22, he says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You see, if I do something that I'm not convinced in my mind about, then for me, it's sin. That's why one person can do one thing, and it can be okay, and I can do the same thing, and it can be wrong for me, because I have to be convinced in my own heart and my own mind. And so that's the fourth exhortation. So the exhortations are, you who are strong, accept the weak and don't despise the weak. You who are weak, don't judge the strong and don't try to force your list of scruples on them. And whichever you consider yourself to be, be fully convinced in your own mind. You say, well, why do I have to accept this other guy? Why can't I judge my brother? Well, I see seven reasons that Paul gives us in this passage. The first one is the last phrase in verse 3. He says, for God has accepted him. You know, one of the hardest lessons to learn as a Christian is that God actually blesses people that I don't agree with. Here he says, don't judge and don't look down on because God has accepted him. The guy who is doing things that you would never do, that you could never do, and that you think are absolutely wrong is accepted by God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be rejecting people that God accepts. That's reason number one. Reason number two is he's not your responsibility. Look at verse four. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. Let me ask you a question. Is that other Christian your servant? Is he responsible to your rules? Are you his master? No. Then stop acting like it. You see, that brother only has one master and you're not him. And then he gives us a third reason. He will stand. Notice the rest of verse 4. To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now this is hard for the weak brother to believe. Because in his opinion, the stronger brother who's exercising his liberty is about to fall on his face. Because to the weaker brother, he doesn't view this as an area of conscience or an area of liberty. He views this as sin. And so he sees this fellow just sliding down the tubes. And so Paul says, if you're really worried about him, relax. If he's a Christian, he will stand. And God can accomplish that without your help. Fourth reason. You don't know his motives. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. You see, the person who 
does not work on Sunday, does it for the Lord. The person who works on Sunday does it for the Lord. The fellow who says, well, I don't play sports on Sunday because it's the Lord's day, he's doing it for the Lord. The person who plays sports on Sunday, he's doing it for the Lord. The fellow who drinks a, a glass of wine with his meal gives thanks to God and does it for the Lord. The fellow who doesn't have a glass of wine with his meal gives thanks to God and refuses for the Lord. See, both are doing it for the Lord. Young fellow came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon when he, when he was uh, alive and he said to him, somebody gave me a box of cigars as a gift and I don't know what to do with it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, give them to me and I'll smoke them to the glory of God. Now, I just know I'm going to get in trouble for that illustration. So send your correspondence to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, aren't you glad that our rewards in heaven are not going to be based on what other people think about us? See, if you're doing it for the Lord, the Lord sees your heart. And the Lord knows your motive. That's why I can be doing one thing and you can be doing the very opposite thing. And God can be pleased with both of us because we're both doing it for the Lord. You see, it's the motive that counts. God can see our heart. And Paul's point is, I don't know your motive and you don't know my motive, so don't judge. And then he gives a fifth reason. And that is because Jesus is Lord. Notice verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now this is the attitude the Lord is looking for. I'm not living for me. I'm living for him. I don't belong to me. I belong to him. And then notice verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why did Jesus go to the cross and rise from the grave? So that he might be Lord of our lives, both now and in the future. That's why we all readily say, Jesus is Lord. But let me ask you something. What am I doing when I insist that you abide by my standards? I am striking at the very Lordship of Christ. And Paul says, I'm not to judge because He is Lord. And the sixth reason is because God is judge. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. And it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. There is coming a day when every knee will bow. There is coming a day when the right and wrong in a brother's conduct are to be judged. 
And Paul's point is, it's going to happen then by him and not now by you. You see, you are not going to co-host my judgment seat. And so Paul is saying, don't do it now because God is judge. And then he gives a seventh reason. And that is because you're only accountable for yourself. Verse 12. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Remember in John 21 when Jesus foretold that Peter would die as a martyr? Remember what Peter did? Peter turned around, looked at John and said, well, what about him? And Jesus said, that's none of your business. You know, we love to get in the other guy's business. But the truth is, we've got plenty to worry about right here. And so Paul, notice, notice what he says here. Each one of us shall give an account of himself. You will give an account of yourself. You won't give an account for me. You won't give an account for others. You will be standing there alone. So Paul says when it comes to the gray areas, when it comes to the areas of conscience, when it comes to the areas like diet and days and drink, don't judge your brother because God has accepted him. He's not your responsibility. He will stand. You don't know his motives. Jesus is Lord. God is judge. And you're only accountable for yourself. And you know what this passage tells me? This passage tells me that God is not concerned about uniformity. God is concerned about unity. See, if the bottom line was uniformity, this passage would read, everybody do this. But the bottom line is unity. And in order to have unity, we have to learn to agree to disagree agreeably. You see, when it comes to gray areas, when it comes to areas of conscience, we've got to understand that some real men do eat quiche. And some real women do pump gas. And some real Christians do things that you may not do. In fact, some real Christians do things that you can't do because your conscience won't allow it. But that's okay. You just be sure in your own mind and don't judge and God will be pleased with you both. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that describes for us how to get along with each other. And Father, I pray that we might take to heart what you've told us here today. And despite our differences, despite... Uh, the differences in, in the strength of our faith, the, despite the differences in our convictions, Father, I pray that you might mold us together in unity, that love might be evident as we deal with one another, and that through that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.